0: Dave's psych lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 podcasting network.
1: Hey, Tom, it's Bob from the office down the hall. It's good to see you, buddy. How have you been? Things have been okay. Bro.
0: Last time we were talking about the organization of the the brain, it's sort of a lobe-to-lobe, or uh, yeah, lobe-to-lobe, I guess, uh, organization. So we've got frontal lobe, which does a lot of complex cognition, personality, we've got the parietal lobe, do a lot of spatial things, Um, we've got the temporal lobe that does a lot of linguistic stuff, the occipital lobe that basically does nothing but vision. right? Um, the cerebellum is important in balance Uh, it is important in certain spatial skills uh, not spatial skills, sorry, uh, timing it seems to be and the brain stem a lot of what it's doing is just relaying stuff from cerebellum and cortex and subcortical regions to the rest of the body it's also detecting uh, it's also a sleep and wakefulness, lives in the brainstem, things like that. Okay. All right. So that's where we work. Now subcortically. Now these are regions that are below the cortex, so subcortical, right? So if I cut my brain diagram out again, but they're above where the uh, <laughs> the brainstem. Okay. So we're talking <coughs> these kind of areas here. Okay? We're not talking the cortex, that's the lumpy bits, we're not talking about that. We're talking about areas just below it, but above where the brainstem ends. Okay? As yeah, hopefully you can see from that, that diagram. Uh, let's take it to the book. Um Hippocampus. I've talked about hippocampus. I've talked about HM. I've talked about the food storing bird story a bit. Hippocampus is important in consolidating episodic memories in humans. It's important in non-humans in spatial tasks. It's also important in spatial tasks in humans. Uh, there's a wonderful study of uh, hippocampal volume in cab drivers in London, England versus hippocampal volume of the average person. And their hippocampus is bigger than the average person's. This is probably due to the fact that they're constantly navigating. And the, the tests, apparently, to become a cab driver in London, England, are not easy. Uh, you have to know where you're going, actually. Unlike cab drivers in most of the world, I might include here, um, it's a pretty rigorous test, and their hippocampus is bigger than you would accept. Right? Hippocampus, we'll talk a little bit more about hippocampus as time goes on, because uh, I have a cool slide that I've inserted here. This nice cross-section, not yet, but I think it's in, um, It isn't in the ones you have. It's, it's the bonus <coughs> that only I get. But uh, there's something pretty cool about it. One of the things is that actually, it, 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 it makes new neurons. It's one of the few parts of the brain that actually does. But hippocampus is important in memory, important in spatial things, uh, and shaped kind uh, of ish like a question mark, but that's not a good name, so they call it hippocampus because that's more like a seahorse. Amygdala, we've talked about this. There's amygdala there. you can see it's kind of almond shaped, and it. it's about the size of an almond. important in strong emotion. And it's also right beside hippocampus. And it's interesting that the most easily remembered events are the ones with the strongest emotions, be they nice emotions or really, really horrid emotions. People tend to remember horrible things and nice things. This is also true with non humans. Right? So uh, a rat is going to remember being shocked a lot more than it's going to be remembered something where that didn't happen. Or it's going to remember food like that than something where there was no food. <clears throat> right? And they're right beside each other. And this makes a great deal of sense when you think about it, right? If you have something that's going to have a connection with each other, they should be pretty close by, if at all possible. The thalamus, here's the thalamus here. The thalamus is a router. Right? I think the book still uses the term sensory switchboard. And the problem with that term, of course, is that no one in this room except for me has ever seen a switchboard. Unless you watch Mad Men. Right, they're routing the calls, right? And then there's some sexual harassment, then they get drunk at work.
2: Yeah.
0: But most of you don't really think about it, how telephones work so much, but you all probably have routers in your home for a network of various devices. And what happens, as you know, you probably know, is that one computer sends out a request through the router to the internet, it comes back to the router, with what, what you asked for, right? Except for yesterday when it was down. Thanks, Bell. That's like two times in a week. Getting a little tired of it. If I didn't have a completely unlimited plan that I was grandfathered into, I'd switch to something else. Yeah, but I, to Shaw, where I have to where I have a data cap? No, sorry. I don't have any data cap. There's no data cap at Shaw. There's no bandwidth limit. I don't, I don't believe you. There's none? Not that I can do that. Yeah, not, you know of. What if you go over like, what if you use like 450 gigs a month? Like in our house. <laughs> There's four of us. All my son does from 4 o'clock in the morning on is stream videos until he goes to school. Which means yesterday at four o'clock in the morning, I'm hearing, "Oh, it's a disaster! The internet's down." <laughs> <laughs> things like, right? There's nothing better than being woken up by a high-functioning autistic kid who's eleven and almost the size of you, screaming,
2: the "Internet's down!"
0: <laughs> what am I gonna do? <laughs> Play a game, okay? <laughs> and I pick him up at school. Have you fixed the internet? Yeah, I, I took the whole thing apart, put it back together. <laughs> it's, it's fine now. Of course, of course, these people don't deal with sarcasm very well, so I just say, no, 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 I was kidding. It's not. It's, then Isabel comes home. Hi, mom. Have you fixed the internet? I don't even
2: know it's
0: <laughs> just. Anyway, but you send something out to the internet, it comes back, and then the router says, "Oh, that was meant to go to uh, Dave's computer right there. That's meant to go to." Uh, Proto Avis, I think is the name of that computer. Right? And then, oh, Archaeopteryx, that's another one of my computers. Some of you should hopefully are sensing the um, <laughs> uh, uh, pattern. It asks for this. And then Gastornis, that's the name of my iPhone. They're all named after scary birds. Um, it asks for this and it sends it up. That's what Thalmus does in essence. Stuff comes in, all sensory information except for touch sorry, uh, that's not what I meant, except for smell, everything comes in through thalamus and then goes to where it gets routed to the right part of the brain to get processed. Pretty cool, pretty cool. So it's like a router. Hypothalamus, which I don't think we have on here, better if I show you, better if I show you here. Uh, Let's not do it that way right about there okay so it's right near the brain stem pretty low down Um, it is (coughs) important in homeostasis so there's a part of hypothalamus that if you lesion it your rats won't stop eating they just eat, 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 eat. That's the, uh, I think that's medial dorsal. <coughs> Maybe wrong. I always get this mixed up. Um. They have no, they won't stop eating. However, if you, so medial dorsal, ventral medial, <coughs> they don't start eating. Let's just start eating. So it controls hunger. And it's interesting. If people have like a, a brain lesion of some sort, and right, hypothalamus is damaged, uh, sorry, if, if, you have a, is this back? if you have your stomach removed, right? you will still get the feeling of having a rumbling stomach, or having a hungry, like the, the feeling of being hungry in your stomach, even without a stomach, because that's all controlled from hypothalamus. Uh, this all, hypothalamus also controls thirst and being sated, like not being thirsty. It controls temperature. Okay, So it's doing homeostasis. It's monitoring your, the state of your body and making sure that everything's roughly okay.
2: <clears throat> All right?
0: You will get a rat, though, by the way, that will get up to the size of... Rats, lab rats are about 200 grams. Okay? they nice little animals. Um, I've seen rats that have these lesions that, that, that weigh like two kilos. So they weigh ten times what they're supposed to
2: weigh.
0: Big, two kilos of rat. Two kilos of lab rat. They're just like...
2: <laughs>
0: they don't really move. They just sort of sit there. Do you have any more food? I'm still hungry. (laughs) Ah, the nucleus accumbens. Everyone's favorite brain region. And you say, everyone's favorite brain region? I don't have a favorite brain region. But you do like it. You know why? Because it's what makes your life worth living. It's what makes things feel good. The accumbens is a part of the reward system. And when the accumbens is activated... You feel good it's the part of your brain that's activated when you eat a good meal it's the part of the brain that's activated when you find out that there was going to be another season of community <laughs> it's the part of your brain that's activated when you have sex it's the part of the brain that's activated when you smoke a cigarette when you drink alcohol when you take heroin you ever wonder why people might oh I don't know take a dirty needle needle and put it in their arm
2: because
0: it feels good. People take drugs because they feel good. I mean, this is just, I don't know, newsflash. Don't want to get all controversial. (laughs) But people take drugs because they feel good. If they call it dope, then why do they think they're so smart? But the reason people take drugs is because they feel good. typically drugs that we take uh, that are um, like recreational drugs literally directly operate the nucleus accumbens. There are receptors in nucleus accumbens for... Uh, nicotine, caffeine, uh, opiates, probably alcohol. We're not really quite sure how alcohol works, actually. Take your pharmacology and you can sit there and stand and watch me for electrode lecture alcohol. It is, oh, I like to stone ball. Um, But all kinds of things that we enjoy, there are receptors for those things. Right now I come. The one drug, in fact, one of the drugs that we don't like, people don't like taking antipsychotic drugs.
2: Because... Um,
0: they block dopamine receptors in your nucleus accumbens. They also stop you from having hallucinations, and that's kind of good. You don't want hallucinations when you're schizophrenic. But it also takes the joy away from life. And the joy doesn't come from hallucinations. Like, oh wow, the the, the the sounds are gone. Damn, was such a great soundtrack? No, they just they can't enjoy their lives anymore. Food doesn't taste good anymore. The Cummins is a pretty important part of your brain, and this is true in pretty much any uh, anything with the back uh, The medulla, whoops, go back, mean that. The medulla is important in sleep and wakefulness, sleep and wakefulness. So basically, it uh, is it's what wakes you up and it's what puts you to sleep, and it does this uh, a lot of that through does, does a lot of that through. Uh, Going through pons, the cerebellum, and of course the subcortical areas. Okay, here's what I threw in, which is this is hip, some hippocampal stuff. Um, if you're looking for this picture, actually, if you look up the word, if you look up the term dentate gyrus on Wikipedia. This is one of the pictures. The reason I took this one is there's some great pictures of some great neuroanatomy pictures on Wikipedia. First of all, uh, secondly, it's free and I'm allowed to use it. So unlike most of the other pictures that I use that are I borrowed not told anyone. Uh, I'm allowed to use this. Why am I showing you this? A couple things. Remember, I talked about what a gyrus was last time? And I, taught, I said that a gyrus was a lump. Well, there can be lumps in subcortical regions, too. And when we take a look at DG, that's the dentate gyrus. Right here. So, this is a slice of hippocampus. And this is a, by looking at that, this is along long sagittal plane, so it's like this. Okay. So we're looking at a piece of hippocampus. And you can see there's a gyrus here. You see this is more of a bump. And we have these two areas here, CA1 and CA3. And they have a certain kind of... Which this doesn't have enough resolution, this picture. But they have a certain kind of neuron in them, CA1 and CA3, called pyramidal cells. They're neurons that are shaped like triangles. Now the thing that dentate gyrus does is it takes input from a part of your brain that's right near hippocampus called the <coughs> entorhinal cortex E N T O R H I N A L just like it sounds entorhinal cortex and they project into dentate gyrus and dentate gyrus projects out to CA1 and CA3 why am I telling you this? Well, I have to test you on something, but no. Why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because there's a cool thing that happens in dentate gyrus. It actually has neurogenesis. New neurons are created in dentate gyrus. Yes, I know you were told in intro psych that there, are no, there is no neurogenesis in an adult brain. Yes, that's mostly true. Right? It's close enough that we just say, yeah, it's But in fact, there is some neurogenesis in the brain. And that's happening all the time. And that's happening in dentate gyrus. This is why the London cab drivers probably had a bigger hippocampus. Right? Than you would expect. Because they were using it so much. Because this is probably what's happening when you're storing memories, when you're consolidating memories. Now this this uh, gyrus is way smaller than one of these, right? Because hippocampus is a little tiny structure compared to your cortex, but it still has little lumps in. It. Okay, and you can see the individual you can see some of the individual neurons here. This is a slice so you can see little individual neurons, but you can't see in great right You have to use a, a more of a, you know, I think they're called microscopes. you notice, though, how, how dense the cells are in dentate gyrus compared to CA1 and CA3? There's a lot more of them per, per square millimeter, right? There's a lot more. Right, and That's because they're constantly being, they're making new ones. Now, is this evidence that if you keep playing enough uh, of those brain training games, you'll get smarter? No, it is not. (laughs) But the cool thing about this is neurogenesis in the adult brain. about that. I said I threw that up there. Two reasons. One, to show you the cool thing with hippocampus, but also to show you a very really small gyrus. Thing. A gyrus can be small. We typically think of it as being cortical. It can be subcortical. All right. Uh, oh, you had a question? Uh, yeah, Maddie, sorry. Yeah. So when
2: it's making new neurons, what does that journey
0: mean for? Like, uh, it... the, the notion is that it's when new memories are being new Yeah. So like if you had damage in your brain, it wouldn't like, help? No, no, no. Uh, In fact, that kind of thing, like if you had damage in another part of your brain, even if there your damage. uh, HM. Right, remember HM. HM was missing. This. CA3. CA1. That's what he's missing. Or wasn't, and he couldn't form any memories. Um, so even something that close by, and it's not going to repair stuff. There's a lot of guesses as to how this works, I mean, we and we're getting close to understanding it, but we're still a long ways away. So, how does it actually store the memories? I don't know. <laughs> no one really. Knows. There's a lot of guesses. It's probably something to do. With having the same kind of pattern of activation of neurons in your cortex that happened when you had the memory in the first place. Okay? So it goes through and kind of stamps that in. Like, we don't really know. That's a damn good guess though. That's a that's a because how the heck else could you have the same kind of you know, you could think about, I don't know, you could think about when you left home this morning, right? you could probably think, oh, it was very cold. And if you think about it enough, you can probably think back to exactly what it felt like right there when you were walking out you're going to go to a bus or whatever, right? So you know what that feels like? That's got to be the same pattern of activation that happened actually when you were leaving the house. makes sense, right? So it's probably the case that it's the same pattern. right? And then this growth in dente gyrus, and projecting into CA1 and CA3 that out to cortex is a pretty good indication as well that's what's going on. But we don't really know. It's just a guess. And a lot of this growth happens in dentate gyrus during sleep. And sleep does seem to be very important in consolidating episodic memories And there's a lot of hippocampal activity when you're sleeping. A lot of hippocampal activity. Even though you don't remember your dreams, right? So it's not, it's, so it's clearly not stamping in what's happened in your dreams. Because you don't wake up and go, oh, I remember that dream perfectly. And it's good you don't, because usually your dreams are sleepy, <coughs> right? You don't want to wake up and go, oh great. <laughs> that thing. I'll have that with me for the rest of my life. Brain's divided into two hemispheres. Hey, look, here they are now. Here's your left hemisphere. Well, not yours, the unfortunate colored brain guy. And your right hemisphere. They're, of course, connected with giant steel poles. No, they're not. Of course they're not. They're connected by the corpus callosum, which is a bunch of fibers here. Okay? Corpus callosum. That is Latin for big body. <coughs> Not all animals have a corpus callosum. All mammals have a corpus callosum, so that's cool. So, you know, mammals, again, kind of awesome, winning everything. <coughs> You know, I don't see a lot of non-mammals getting elected president of the United States, for example. Yeah, another human got inaugurated on here yesterday. Yeah. But a lot of birds don't have a corpus callosum. They have a little bundle of fibers at the back of their head. I guess you might call that the corpus really tiny And... Joke there, nothing apparently, okay? <laughs> the nice thing this allows, you, allows us to do with these birds that don't have a corpus callosum is that they basically have two, they've, they're split brain patients. You learn about split brain patients probably in, in intro psych, right? Yeah? So they have these people that have the corpus callosum severed. Right, because they um, have epilepsy and they have these horrible seizures and they don't want them spreading from one hemisphere to the other. And the last <coughs> thing they do is they just cut your brain in half. Sew your head back up. And it has some side effects. You're like, no shit. <laughs> you know. So what happens? Well, there is a lot of localization in our brain. There's a lot of generalities to a lot of localization, typically we doing we doing, typically we doing um, language in the left half of our brain and spatial mathematical things in the right half of our brain. That is especially true for right-handed males, the best people on earth. But, I'm a right-handed male, if I say um, You might have heard, well, in left-handed people, it's completely backwards. That's not true. It's more likely to be backwards. But still 70% of left-handed women, and women aren't as lateralized as men, um, still have Left language, right spatial. That's very general, however. Because right, remember I talked about how the right hemisphere can still deal with things with language, I talked about that swearing work last time, right? Um, so what happens is people with a corpus callosum center, if you show them something in the right visual field and ask them to name it, they're pretty good at it. Right? Because that's language. But if you ask them to recognize in their right visual field, they're not so good at naming things. However, they'll remember pictures that they see in the right visual field, but not so much in their left. Because pictures are spatial. You have to remember where things went. Um, You end up with people also, for example, emotional, uh, the emotional content of language, for example, is in the right half uh, typically of your brain. And you know it's left language, but emotional content of language is on the right side. So, if you play people a song, or sorry, not a song, spoken word in their left ear, so it's going to go to their right side of their brain, right? But it's about and you change the, the emotional content. People are going to notice the emotional change in the person's voice. <laughs> so people, just, they're called split-brain patients, and they're fascinating, and they, they've allowed us to do a lot of research and find out the stuff about brain lateralization which is really quite cool stuff. Now, the neat thing about these birds not having um, a corpus callosum <laughs> is that you can do really cool research without having to find a split brain patient. And you can find that about communication between the hemispheres in non-humans. So for example, Nikki Clayton has done some really neat work um, with food sorters, that's sort of her thing. And one of the things that she did is she took these two kinds of birds. Um, one of them is a food store, and one of them is a non store. They both live over in Britain. Um, the, non- the, the food store she used was marsh Tits. and the non store she used was great tits. That's right, I said great tits. And I can, because I mean Paris Major. It's a kind of bird. She hasn't look for food. She covered up one of their eyes. Okay. Covered up one eye. This is kind of cool. How do you do that? You can't just put your hand over top of it. She's just, she's, you know, something it. So you have these little caps. You've got these little caps. And she used false eyelash glue, which I didn't even know existed. And attach it on the bird, so that you can remove it from it the bird. So the bird flies over, and he's only seen with his left or his right eye. And he sees where the food is, gets the food, then he goes back in later <coughs> and finds. If you put the other, if you cover the, the opposite eye, you can't find the food. It's like I've got two brains. I don't know. I learned that with this half of my brain, not this half. It's pretty cool. The neat thing is, after 24 hours, the food store, the one that depends on remembering where things are, has transferred the information from one side to the other, and the non-storer never does.
2: That's kind of cool.
0: We did something similar... Um, well, something like birds and, and their brains. Uh, I was a postdoc. This is uh, Roberts, Phelps, Vecuta, Broadbeck, and Russ. They were no the science. And what we did is we had these pigeons, right? And we would show them a stimulus in one eye or the other, and then we'd see if they could remember it with the opposite eye. The cool thing about pigeons is they actually have two visual systems, one for stuff on the side, one for straight ahead. So you can do within an eye, they remember stuff, but not between the eyes. So you can show them something in the front, and they eventually remember on the side. But if you show them something in the side here at the front, they don't remember it all over here on the left side. So left to right, no good, but within an eye, just fine. It's kind of cool. All right. Oh, before right. I talk about this method, you've heard this, right? This left brain, right brain thing. No, oh, you should, you know, you really should use the right brain more. Which one's supposed to be creative anyway? What's that crap? It's right the creative one? Yeah? Well, that's all just complete and utter bullshit. <laughs> Are are we lateralized? Hell yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. I mean, there's lateralization in humans, a little more in men than women. This is why women um, have a bigger corpus callosum uh, than men do. There's more communication with women uh, within their brains, Um, on average. Is the lateralization? Yes. But is it the case that you are left-brained or right-brained? No. No, you are not. You could be left-or-right-handed. No one's left their right brain.
2: <laughs> right?
0: It's not like, well, I, I'm not creative at all because I don't have my right. You know, people that say that they're right brain, ask them if they'd like their left half removed and think it would affect them something. Well, I don't even use it. That's up there with, you know, we only use 10% of our brains. Anybody says that to you, ask them which 90% they'd like removed. <laughs> I don't know where this crap comes from. You need it all It's a necessary... You know, you can't... It doesn't work without brain. You need brain for body to work. Brain is part of body. You know? That one drives me crazy. Because that also leads into the... Well, you know, that other 90%. You know what's there? Psychic ability. So... (laughs) That's when I usually say, well, you're an idiot, and I leave the room. Because um, <laughs> I just can't. I, I, but I don't know where these things come from. One of, the, one of the reasons I often tell people they should take this course that aren't in, say, psychology um, or, or biology is that there's so many myths about how your brain works out there that it's a useful thing to, to know. Uh Alexander has a question here. He says... Uh, In the end, we can't associate spatial navigation. Memory can be. So spatial navigation is a module of memory. Uh, The module review of memory of cognition says that we have these different sort of organs of cognition. Uh, They don't don't actually have to be uh, spatially separate in your brain. They don't have to be localized, they probably are. Um, Can we separate the idea of spatial cognition and other cognition? Well, yeah. I mean, there are things that are non-spatial. There's there's no there's no argument there. There, there are things like, for example, I have you remember a list of words. That's a completely non-spatial task. Yeah, but uh,
1: what I mean is like, spatial navigation code called memory, right? Yes. So can we dissociate everybody from spatial navigation and...
0: No, one, they're both kinds of memory. So is spatial navigation... The Module, never. I, I would say it's a spatial module. I would say it's driven by, ge- by our encoding by, uh, geometry. Uh, that's actually some of the research. On that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, you guys will be getting, when I get my talk together for the conference I'm going to in Florida, you're going to get to hear a version of it and tell me if it's okay. And you'll hear all about the, the, the spatial module, the geometric module. And is it lateralized? Yep. <clears throat> all right. Look, in your brain, you've got neurons and glial cells. Neurons have axons and dendrites. Axons are the parts sticking out, dendrites are the parts also sticking out, but they sort of usually receive information. There's lots of dendrites, typically lots, and one axon. Okay? So, and we'll talk a lot about neurons, don't worry. Hey, assuming you were really worried about that. Oh, I hope we talk a lot about neurons. I'm really worried we won't. I don't think you were that worried. I hope he doesn't just tell us stories about graduate school again today. i classes I people think about. So then this time we were really hammered. Um, and We thought we'd go to the lab. Always a good idea, by the way. <laughs> a whole bunch of neurons connected is called a tract or a nerve, depending where it is, generally. Um, in the, ner- the central nervous system, we tend to call it a tract, except we often call them nerves. <laughs> it's horrible. Uh, in the peripheral nervous system, we call them nerves. So, like, you know, your ulnar nerve, right? Your funny bone. Okay, that's. If you feel, you actually feel. It's a whole bunch. It's a whole bunch of axons, dendrites. That's what that is. You do that, you do it well enough, and it goes. Does that thing ah, there it Goes. Ah, that's a good one.
2: Right? That's it. I, I did,
0: I'm touching axons and dendrites. It's exciting. I amuse easily. So that's a nerve. Typical, not the peripheral nervous system, right? What makes you move and what you feel. Now, we typically call things tracts in the brain, except we don't always. Sometimes we call them nerves. Because they're all sort of traditional names. So the optic nerve should probably really be called the optic tract, but it isn't. Your cranial nerves should really be called cranial tracts, but they're not They're called cranial nerves. If something's a nerve it is in the peripheral nervous system, if so, uh, unless it is, if it's a tract, it'll be in it'll be, it'll be, it'll be, it'll be the central nervous system. Nobody, I, I can't think of any tracts that are in the peripheral. But there are nerves that are in the central, which is annoying. And it's not my fault. Don't blame me. It was like that when I got here. Now, the division of the central nerve, of the nervous system, into the CNS, the PNS, is a, it's about anatomy. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but it's not as much, the distinction is as much about physiology, right? So we can make a more of a physiological distinction, and we can talk about the cranial nervous system, and the spinal nervous system. That's how they operate what they do. Cranial's in your head, and it tends to operate things in your head and also goes through the spinal nervous system and operates your body. Then there's the spinal nervous system that just operates your body. central nervous system, peripheral nervous system, autonomic nervous system distinction, because uh, that's what I was taught at school. That's the reason I like it. It has some um, intuitively pleasing things as well Division, the because there is, except in dentate gyrus, basically, you can't grow new neurons in the central nervous system. Uh, you can in the periphery. So I like that part of the distinction as well. Um, so I mean, I like that one. Cranial uh, versus spinal is fine, too. So you can talk about the spinal nervous system. There's nothing wrong with talking about that. All I'm saying is that they're... The difference there is that like the spinal nervous system in the spine, that's the part of the central nervous system, right? You can't grow new neurons in your spine, in the spinal cord. Which explains things why, like, for example, why like, if you get a broken neck, you're never going to walk again you can't uh, control the rest of your body, because it's not going to repair, right? But we can talk about that, and you'll, you'll see that distinction used in, in the book a lot. In your head, you have 12 sets of two cranial nerves. They do things like control your salivary glands, uh, control your blinking, moving eye movements, things like that. Control your tongue. They basically control the inputs and outputs of stuff in your head. Right? Now, the brainstem gets input from your senses, and I should be more clear about that, from your tactile senses. From touch, so from pressure and heat and cold and pain. Pressure and heat and cold and pain. When I say senses, there, I'm not talking about hearing, I'm not talking about vision. Right? It's great how you were taught all your life you have five senses. You actually have four touch senses. I love that. You probably have four visual senses. You know, brightness, color, motion, and color in motion. Which is crazy. by how it works. But the brainstem gets input from the rest of your body. Right? So that's like, like I said, pressure, heat, cold, and heat and cold being two separate ones is completely bizarre. Again, I wouldn't build this thing this way. And pain. The outputs from the brainstem goes down into the spine and to the rest of the body. So in other words, not to the head. Not to the head. Right? People seem to be having fun up there. You no. Know. Anybody been downstairs today by the way in the West Wing? Because it smells like poop. <laughs> you been down there today? No, don't go. It's horrible. And I gotta go back there again in like forty-five minutes. I gotta be back there. And it smells like it smells like some weird bunk of like an old bathroom from a like an airplane and uh, a badly made egg salad sandwich. <laughs> yeah, yay school. Right, good. It's only in the halls. Once you get in the classroom, it's okay, but you gotta quickly move through the halls. And I, I don't suggest doing a lot of breathing. You gotta breathe, breathe with your mouth. Or take a deep breath as you get off the stairwell, and then run. (laughs) Just saying. So I may be a little bit loopy from teaching down there before. Could be that. Cool fumes. (laughs) It smells like all the bad parts of camping, you know. Oh, back to your brain. <laughs> you can divide your brain into between uh, hindbrain, the midbrain, and diencephalon, and then the cortex on top of it. Okay? We'll talk about that in a sec. Um, so that's another anatomical slash physiological, actually, distinction. Because parts in the hindbrain are connected and they're beside each other. Parts in the midbrain are connected and they're beside each other. Parts in diencephalon are connected and they're all beside each other. So it's anatomical and physiological. Okay, by the way, these are your cranial nerves. I'm never going to ask you about these. I'm never going to make you, you know, I'm not going to say list all the cranial nerves and what they do. I wouldn't do that I don't think that's very useful. But just to give you a notion, and again, I pick, pick this out of Wikimedia uh, uh, Commons. So see what these ones do here. For example, this is controlling uh, salivary glands, <laughs> right? Controlling, eye movements, this kind of thing. So it's really basic, not horribly interesting things. That's what cranial nerves do. But without them, you know, there'd be no moving of tongue or eyes. And that you suddenly have a really bad time. You don't do a lot of talking without moving your tongue. You can't do a lot without moving your eyes. You know, it's that kind of thing salivation, all that kind of stuff. Okay. So decided to show you that. I thought you might be interested. Okay, your hindbrain. What's it do? Your hindbrain does fine movements and balance. And that also includes the cerebellum. So if we're talking hindbrain, let's
2: see if we can get this out of here.
0: This is why I ever became a neurosurgeon. Okay. So, and there's the orientation, right? The rest of the cortex is here. Here's cerebellum. Hind brain, we're talking <coughs> back here. Okay? What it's doing, and we're including cerebellum in it. It does fine motor movements. Okay? Uh, and it does... Some quick movements, and one of the things you'll find if you look at something like a, a frog, they got way too big a hindbra- uh, too too big a cerebellum for their size. But they got to do really quick movements, you know. They got to get to fly. So if they actually do that kind of thing, their cerebellum is bigger than ours is actually, for body size. Again, never seen a frog win an election. We still run this whole place. Mammals. Yay. This probably has something to do with learning because we have movement in here. There's also a timing aspect to this. Um, and, and, and A lot of what learning is is timing. Before and after. Right? Causes and effects. The reticular formation, which is I can see a little bit better here. See, so this is cool, because now that's just... We're going to go inside now. Uh-huh. Reticular formation, right around there. We have a lot of connections from there up to cortex. What's that doing? It wakes you up. It wakes you up. And it puts you to sleep. Oh, when you, you have a normal wake-up, not when you have... Uh, yeah, an alarm. Yeah. Or someone turning on a light in, in the room. Right? You actually wake up when you're supposed to wake up. Which I probably none of us do. I'm sure none of us get the right amount of sleep. See, I, why do I do things like this? I'm starting to take this thing apart. I just I fiddle with things and then it's never going to go back together. <laughs> all of Humpty, all the king's horses and what have you with the brain and such. <laughs> That's how that goes, right? <laughs> now the midbrain... Uh, let's go with We can still use this Midbrain's here Where my thumb is That's the midbrain um, It's hard to see here This little part here is called The superior colliculus uh, Which you probably guessed and That's the inferior colliculus down there They deal with vision Oh sorry, superior does vision, inferior does audition. Here. But they're doing something, you know, excuse me, in us, this is where visual processing is happening. This is action for vision. This is action for vision. So this is stuff like moving your eyes over here. Move your head like that. To see something or tilting your head a certain way to hear something. That's action for vision, action for hearing. In animals that don't have nearly the kind of cortex we have, in fact, a lot of their visual processing is done right in here. Just below the tectum is the tegmentum, right there. Um, This is also important in movement, and again, especially in movement for vision. Right, So it's, again, action for vision. So it'll send out the signal like, I want to see that and get it closer. Now, it doesn't send out the, again, the, the, the signal to actually move your arms. That's done in a whole different part of your brain. But, I hate to use this word, but I'll, I'll use it anyway. The idea of getting taking your arm and grabbing this, that would have come from tectum. Tectum? I don't even know him. <laughs> That's kind of not very funny. Okay. <laughs> Here's, oh, this is a good picture. So, you can see here. Tectum, right there, see? Right there. I had it at a different angle. but Yeah, right there. That's a pretty picture. Nice slice, that's good. So, there's the pawns, right? That's the part that sticks out here, and the tectum's right up there. And then we got superior colliculus and
2: inferior colliculus.
0: All right. Now we move up to the diencephalon. That's where hypothalamus is, and I was saying before. That's hunger, thirst, sex, and thermoregulation. And the thalamus, that's a sensory switchboard or the sensory router. So that's in diencephalon. It's subcortical, as we mentioned before.
2: Questions over?
0: Okay, good. Okay, the forebrain. Aha, now we're into the interesting part the lobes. That's collectively known as the cortex. we got the limbic cortex, or the old cortex. That's where hippocampus is. That's where amygdala is. That's where nucleus accumbens is. Okay? That's just below the lumpy bits that are called the neocortex. Neo meaning new. Also meaning savior of humanity in the matrix. Well, I have a brain in my head. <laughs> Now, at the base, uh, let's see. This guy's probably better. So we've got limbic systems in here, okay? And then at the base of that, so there's the corpus callosum. Right at the top of the limbic system is what's called the basal ganglia. Ganglia means a whole bunch of neurons, so the ganglion is. And basal means at the base, right? So there's the base. Right? So it's the base of going between the neocortex and the old cortex. Um, this is really important in movement. This Part of this area, is, that's where the substantia negra is. I told you the substantia negra, it's the part that stains black. Um, substantia nigra is important in uh, movement. Uh, there's a lot of dopaminergic um, Neurons there, they run a dopamine, the neurotransmitter dopamine. And when we get a loss of dopamine function in that area, that's when someone gets what we call Parkinson's disease. Okay. And you might think, well, why don't we just inject them with dopamine? Well, it doesn't work that way, it doesn't fit through the blood brain barrier. These are all ones we've talked about before. We're moving up. we the limbic system. Hippocampus, amygdala, accumbens, the olfactory bulb. Uh, the olfactory bulb in a human is really small. Taking the brain apart. Um, now I get all confused. There is there. I find a good picture of our olfactory bulb. Yeah, it's hard to find on this brain image. Because ours is so small, that's why. <laughs> we don't have much of an olfactory bulb. Um, makes sense because we don't do much by smell. Right? Except when you go down, down to the basement or the portal. Did I mention that? So thing is the olfactory bulb is right next to Hippocampus amygdala. Well, I should be able to find it, here. I but I can't. But And it's the only sense that doesn't go through thalamus. Interesting. Well, if that's the case, maybe that explains why smells can be remembered so vividly. Right? You know, little factory memory. You must have had these experiences where you smell something and go, oh my God, I'm suddenly back to when I was six. Right? Right. I remember my brother uh, had a girlfriend, and he brought this girl over for the first time. And she walked in the house, and I went, "Oh wow, you wear the same perfume my kindergarten teacher wore." <laughs> I mean, I hadn't thought about that, like ever. I sit around going, "Oh yeah, kindergarten teacher? Oh yeah?" No, I
2: <laughs> no.
0: And there it was. Very strange, right? See, we all know about that, and it, it may be the case that it's right beside hippocampus and amygdala. That's what does that, it, for strong emotions. Now, evolutionarily, why would that be the case? Well, the oldest sense that any animal, that, that ever showed up in an animal, has got to be a chemical sense. It's a simple thing to do. You have receptors for different kinds of molecules. That's, that's an easy kind of sense to make. So where would you want to put it? Well, right beside something that can encode that, that can make memories. Right? So it actually makes sense that it would show up right beside it. So it makes an evolutionary sense. That's a guess. We don't really know why smell memory is remembered so well. We really don't. Uh, if you want to read some on that stuff, uh, maybe you want to do a paper on, on, on smell memory and, and amygdala and olfactory bulb, the person to look up is Rachel Hers, H E R Z. Like the world expert in that stuff. I went to school with her, she's really smart. Okay. Now, That's when we look at it from that cranial perspective. Let's look at the spinal nervous system. We have what are called dermatomes. So that's your spinal column. And we have nerves running to and from the spinal column that control the body and receive input. And each of those little... These dermatomes are patches of skin. And the cool thing is, this is the same on everyone. And they're patches of skin and muscle below it, that are controlled, that go through different parts of your spinal column. So you can see, for example, so your legs here are going through the various lumbar. That's why they're all L. So they go down around there. So the inputs come if we've got I'll oh, no, see if you do what see the matter. Going through here, so that's section one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four, it's about there. Small part of your back is controlling part of your leg. So it goes through there, and up your brain, and then that's for sensing, and then for movement from there, that's the same part of your, your, your spinal cord to that part of your leg. Left to right. Right. to left, right? Okay. Why is this useful information? Well, maybe your leg is sore, but it's not that your leg is hurt. Or maybe it's numb. And it's not a problem with your leg, it's a problem with your back. This is why you can get an issue where, for example, you hear people say, I've got a pinched nerve in my back. But it's not their back that hurts, but their leg is numb. And if the nerve is just pinched, just that dermatome will be numb. And they'll have, you'll have trouble moving just that one dermatome. If, if it's severed, anything there and below, you'll be paralyzed. So you can see, for example, what happens right up top. If you, if you snap your neck, you see you can still control your face. Because that's, that's controlled by cranial nerves. But the rest of your body doesn't work. You have no what we would call voluntary movement, and you're numb <clears throat> everywhere. But if you pinch a nerve, you might get you might get some temporary paralysis, uh, or you might end up um, just being a little bit numb. Right? I know that, for example, my, my dad in 1966 we lived here, and he drove up to Wawa, I don't know why, uh, to, to do, I forget what he was doing, but he was visiting uh, a garage, and they didn't, this garage didn't have a, uh, a hoist, for the cars, they had a grease pit, you walk down older. they were like that, you walk down into this pit, and the car would park on top of it, and then you could work on the car, okay, so it's just, you know, you have a hoist, and my dad walked in there, and it was very, it was like the kind of weather today, so it was very bright and sunny, but snowy, So it was very bright. He walked into this garage and he fell into the grease pit, but he fell and he landed on his feet. And he's like, No, I'm okay. Annoyed my dad. He probably had about 12 (coughs) cigarettes. And then said, Oh, I'm fine. And he drove back to Sault Ste. Marie that night, woke up the next morning, and looked at my mother. He said, I can't move my legs. Because the compression, right? had pinched the nerve right off to the point where he couldn't move. Okay, So he ended up being, spending the six months in the hospital. They did all kinds of operations and then eventually went home. And my poor mother was alone at home with a baby who couldn't see. Um, to show you how quickly medical sciences moved, my brother ended up with a similar injury in his back, different reason. His from hauling gear uh They did his in six hours and he went home for dinner that night which my dad literally leaked in the hospital for six months. So it's quite amazing. And this was the case, and all through my dad's life, uh, it was always the case that he'd have a couple of weeks each year where he was like, eh, I probably shouldn't do very much because I could feel my back's acting up. And you, you would see his leg, and it would start doing things like involuntary muscle movements, like his leg would go, like his thigh or something like that. Hey, show you. Hey, look at this, look at this. You want to see this? Come here. I thought that, it's freaking me out. But he was like that. You take a, he hurt himself, You take a picture of it email Hey, look at that. I almost cut my arm off today. Look. Yeah, are you all right? Oh, yeah, I'll be fine. What the size of my thumb, though. I hit it with a hammer. man was insane. So a lot of times when you go to a doctor, what will happen is if they think you have neurological damage in your spinal cord, they'll actually poke you with a pin. They're not doing this. Now, if it's a doctor, just poking oh, your bin, It's a <laughs> But if they're picking certain spots, they're doing it for a reason. They're doing it for a reason. Yeah, if you go to the doctor, the doctor's like, yeah, come here. Come on. <laughs> that's when you get a new doctor. You say, I don't care if there's a shortage of MDs. You're a freak. <laughs> so inside the spinal column, we have two what are called roots. The dorsal root, and that's from the, that's from the senses, and the ventral root. You see how this is? I love this diagram, how it meshes so nicely with the background. Right? It almost looks like I made this, doesn't it? I didn't. I stole this one as well. But <laughs> so dorsal from sensory. So this is the back part of your spine, spinal column, right? The back part of your spinal column. That's getting the sensory information, sending it to your brain. The ventral part towards your gut of the spinal column is, is controlling movement of that same part. This is actually called the bell magendie law. The fact that dorsal is from sensory and ventral is to movement is true in everything. Everything with a backbone. And it's actually even true in a lot of things without backbones. So it's a law. And I guess it was found by Bell and Magendi. And they probably argued over who should go first, and then they probably did a road show. And then... Bell one. All right. The internal autonomic nervous system, uh, basically, generally, this is the sympathetic nervous system does arousal, and the parasympathetic does cooling down. Sympathetic is doing this through the release of epinephrine or uh, endorepinephrine, also called adrenaline and noradrenaline, into your bloodstream. This is pretty much hormonal, this system. So, now hormones don't work that differently than how neurotransmitters work, right? They don't don't work that differently than how neurotransmitters work. Such that there are receptors in organs, binds to a receptor, open ion channels. It's not that horribly different. But it isn't nearly as quick because right, it's got to go through your bloodstream and be pushed by your heart. And this is why, for example, I think I talked about this a couple days ago, when you have a situation where you have a, something that was a, a, a rousing situation, like, I don't know, like something dangerous, and then you're through it, like a mere miss on a highway, it's the case that like, you don't feel that for 45 seconds, a minute, after it actually happened, because it's got to go through your bloodstream. So if you notice, I'm not gonna, we'll, we'll talk about hormones a bit later on in the course. Okay, here's some principles of nervous system organization. The sequence of information transmission is input, integration, output. What do I mean by that? Something comes in, that's input, obviously. What's the integrate part? Integrate means that it's not just simple circuits that go from in to out. That information gets... Other information is integrated. Um, So it's not like there's just one, they're they're just simple one to one circuits. There's a lot of stuff happening up here. Most of the neurons up here, most of the neurons in your body are not sensory and they aren't motor. They're mostly what are called interneurons. And what interneurons do is they integrate information. Right? So this is how I can tell, for example, um, Zach's right there. How do I do that? Well, I can recognize him because I get all this input, right? And then I have memories of what he looks like. My face detection system says, oh, that's what he looks like. And then I say, like, oh, that's his hat. And why are you wearing a hat? Because it's like a thousand degrees in here um, But earlier, it's cold outside. So I get it. And plaid shirt or whatever. Whole thing gets all integrated together and in then output, right? And I can say, oh, I know who that is. So all this stuff, recognizing someone, that's sensory, goes in, but then I have to integrate this, all, all this information
2: with
0: all other stuff I don't know. Right? So that's, the, the, the sequence is always that way. It's input, integrate, output. Um, there's a functional uh, division between sensory and motor systems, and we see that with dorsal and ventral root. We see that in the brain with uh, sensory and motor areas of the cortex. I'm sorry? Yeah, sensory and motor. The inputs and outputs are crossed. In other words, they're different... Circuits in and out, and that left controls right and right controls left. Right half of the brain controls the left half of the body, the left half of the body controls the right half of the brain. Uh, <laughs> left half of your brain controls the right half of your body, right half of your brain controls the left half of your body. There's symmetry in your brain, there's quite a bit of it, and you can see with this diagram here, there's a great deal of it with this model. Um, on a gross level, there's a lot of symmetry. On, if you look a little more closely, and especially if you look at what they accomplish on a functional level, there's a lot of asymmetry too. So you get asymmetry such that the, uh, the left half of your brain's doing language. You have a left broker's area and a right broker's area, but the right one isn't doing language production. It's doing the tone of language. The emotional tone. For example... Basically, what we have here is a system of excitation and inhibition. In fact, you can basically describe the nervous system as that. It's just a really complicated network of things that are either that are firing and not firing, and firing and make other parts of your brain less likely to fire. There's a lot of inhibition and a lot of excitation. There are multiple levels of function. Notice how I mentioned vision about 400 times in the last few days. Right? Oh, this does vision. Oh, that does vision. Oh, That's action for vision. That's vision for action. That's action vision. That's vision action. Some of those I'm making up. <laughs> right? We have, like, tectum doing visual stuff. We have tegmentum do, uh, superior colliculus doing visual stuff. And then we've got occipital lobe doing visual stuff. This is doing more complicated visual stuff back here than is happening in here. But there's multiple levels of function. There's levels. We have what's called the Hewling's-Jackson principle. Nervous systems in general are hierarchical and parallel. What that means is a lot of stuff is being analyzed at the same time. That's the parallel part. A lot of different circuits are firing at the same time. That's the parallel part. It has to be done in parallel. you think we could do this all in serial, like one thing after the other? It would take some time. Think about something like your eye. If you were just to recognize... It's just a send input up your brain. Up your brain. From your eye. If you had to analyze each receptor in your retina in serial. In other words, one after the other? We have 130 million per eye. Let's say that takes a tenth of a second to analyze each of them. So now we're at what? 13 million seconds. If you did the math on that, that means it'll take about three days to get the state of each body. Hmm, you're dead already trying to figure out what was that I saw before. <laughs> so it's got to be happening in parallel, but there have to be levels. It has to be hierarchical. And it's it's massively parallel, this thing. I think of all of stuff' happening at once. It's no, like it's one thing at, at another, after another. It's not like, you know, you hear about multitasking in computers? That still is doing this, doing that, doing this. That's not what this thing does. This thing's doing, oh, i will just doing what you should at once. <laughs> right? So it's controlling... It's only my blood chemistry. I don't even know what's doing that. It's keeping me breathing. It's making sure I know what to say next. It's trying to figure out now, how does this go back together with the other part of this brain? It's doing all that stuff at once. So it's massively parallel and massively hierarchical, which is one of the things that makes it just so massively awesome and I mean that in the truest sense of the word awesome you should be in awe of that thing in your head <coughs> things are localized and distributed localized such that we can talk all the way through the last two classes like, this thing does this, this thing does this, this thing does this that being said, there's a lot of distributed processing going on too as I mentioned I, you wouldn't say, well you can remove my frontal <coughs> lobe I don't need it no, you need the whole thing To show you how complicated this can get and about the idea of parallel and hierarchical and localized and distributed, here's a simple model of the human visual system. You're never going to be tested on this. I'm just trying to give you an example. And we actually know, the deep thing is, the reason I picked this is because we actually know how vision works. If you take a look at that, you can see We've got all these brain reviews that are doing things, no parallel part, a lot of stuff's happening at once, but also note the fact that it's hierarchical, such that things are, there are boxes that are above other boxes. Okay. And I, can, I succeeded in putting the brain back together, which means that class is
2: over.
1: Thanks, hey guys. Things have been okay for me Except that I'm a zombie now I really wish you Might hesitate to submit to our demand But here's an FYI You're all gonna die screaming All we wanna do is eat your brains We're not unreasonable I mean no one's gonna eat your eyes All we wanna do is eat your brains We're at an impasse here Reminds. If you open up the door We'll all come inside and eat your brain I don't want to nitpick Tom, but is this really your plan? Spend your whole life locked inside a mall Maybe that's okay for now, but someday have to make the call I'm not surprised to see You haven't thought it through enough You never had the head For all that bigger picture stuff But Tom, that's what I do And I plan on I mean, no one's going to eat your eyes. All we want to do is eat your brains. We're at an impasse here. Maybe we should compromise. If you open up the door, we'll all come inside.